0: sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of of the age? Now in 1 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen.
1: Let's pray together. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We believe, Lord Jesus, please help our unbelief and grant now that by your Spirit, that we would truly, those of us who are yours already, that we would know what it means to enjoy communion with you, the risen reigning Lord, over and through your word. Because this is a living word. And you live at the table you host for us this morning. So grip us with your presence and grip us as well. Grip our hearts with not only your real presence, but also your real absence here and awaken a hunger and longing within us. Sharpen that hunger and longing for your return. And we pray, Lord, today that that your mercy would wash over this place and all the hearts here and that those who are not yet uh, your people would be raised from the dead, born again today by your grace and in the power of your saving work. And we pray in your name. Amen. I know the sermon text is a little weird, so I gotta explain it. Uh, we're about to head into, uh, well, we, we kind of tipped our toes over the edge of Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 and 5 are, uh, they're known as uh, what's called the Olivet Discourse. They are the fifth. Matthew's gospel has five large blocks of t- Jesus's teaching, and this is the fifth and final one. And uh, we're going to spend a few weeks uh, working our way through uh, this block of our Lord's teaching. And what we're going to find is that most of our time is going to be spent thinking about two issues that, that are before us in this passage. One is Jesus's relationship to the temple. And that may not immediately grip you and say, oh, I can't wait to hear that. But you know what? I'm pretty sure that three weeks from now you're going to say, oh, I'm glad we thought about that. Because it's absolutely at the center of the gospel. It, it, you cannot understand the cross within the framework of the Bible without understanding Jesus' relationship to the temple. So it's not some arcane thing. It is a central thing. So that's the first issue we're going to spend time thinking about. And the second one is his second coming, which occupies a lot of the space in Matthew 24 and 5. And and because, and you'll notice, those, those same two questions are at the very heart of what Jesus' disciples ask him in verse 3 in Matthew 24. Right after... After uh, he has talked to them about the temple, he's left the temple and, and uh, said some very uh, strong things. And, and then uh, they say, hey, look at the temple. And he says, I need to tell you the temple's gonna be destroyed. That's very unsettling for them. And so they ask him then in verse three, tell us when will these things be? That's the, referring to the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see those two issues they've put into play or they're responding, they're articulating them, that Jesus' relationship to the temple and his second coming. And so this morning, because we're celebrating communion, um, and because the Apostle Paul makes an explicit link, draws an explicit link between the celebration of the Lord's Supper and Jesus' second coming, I thought we would enter Matthew 24 by taking these issues, uh, at least for today, in reverse order. And thinking first about, Uh, Jesus' second coming through the lens of the table. You'll notice in our text, uh, particularly in verse 26, that Paul emphasizes the link between uh, not just the Lord's Supper and Jesus' first coming. Notice he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. First coming until he comes. Second coming. So you cannot meaningfully eat and partake of the sacrament without thinking, according to the Apostle Paul, about both comings of Jesus and their significance for the Christian life. So the supper rests on our Lord's first coming and reaches forward through it. We reach forward to his second coming. And you know what? It's a good reminder. Think about the words of institution that Jesus himself gives. Um, twice he has to say do this in remembrance of me twice he says it right this take the bread this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me that just struck me this week why he would say that those things twice do this in remembrance of me. Why do you have to tell somebody to remember something? It's kind of human being 101 here. Because we forget. Think about that. Do this in remembrance of my substitutionary death. Do this in remembrance of of the most important event in history. How can we not remember the most important uh, We forget it all the time, don't we? And notice as well, he's wanting us to move from forgetfulness to mindfulness. The table is supposed to strengthen, recover us out of our forgetfulness and bring us into mindfulness of the real stakes of life. And then he says twice, he's got that personal pronoun. Pronouns, you build your life around pronouns, my friends, in the Christian life. Me, me, do this in remembrance of me. Not do this in remembrance of salvation. Not do this in remembrance of eternal life. Not do this in remembrance of forgiveness. Not do this in remembrance of freedom from hell and eternity in heaven. No, do this in remembrance of me. Because we have a tendency, I believe, to depersonalize the gospel and to commodify things like eternal life and forgiveness. And the Bible is relentless in wanting to go after that. Jesus, when he, in the high priestly prayer, when he's wanting to, when he speaks to his Father about what the nature of eternal life and this is eternal life, so we're going to get a definition. That they may know you the only true God. Uh Uh-oh, eternal life is a relationship. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. People are at the heart of what eternal life is. There is no way to understand them apart from those persons. And so the table, Jesus' instructions for the table, they remind us of these things. And the table reminds us as well, my friends, that you know what? The gospel's good news is so wonderful. It is so massive. And I love the fact that we are a church that that loves to celebrate the good news of the gospel. But we, we need to remember when we celebrate the Lord's Supper that guess what? The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger than the good news of his first coming it's bigger than that he's coming back the gospel's good news exceeds the first coming of jesus christ the gospel's good news requires two comings of christ so this morning i want to think about those things with you and uh And so we're going to do that under two headings, our Lord's Supper and our location. How does does Jesus use the table to teach us where we are? And secondly, our Lord's Supper and our longings. So let's think first about our Lord's Supper and our location. I know that may sound like a little bit of an odd heading, but let me explain what I mean by it. Uh, Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord's Supper Is uh, one of the things that we're taught through the Lord's Supper is to understand where we are. And you can't, and I'm not talking about your physical address, I'm talking about your historical address. You can't know how to live unless you know where you are. And you can't know where you are, really, unless you know when you are. And by, by where, again, I don't mean your physical address, I mean your historical address. What do I mean? Well, here's what I mean. When we when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are here coming to a table that Jesus Christ has set in the midst of the overlapping shadows of the already and the not yet. We proclaim the Lord's death past until he comes again. Did you notice there's past, there's present. The Lord's death is in the past. We proclaim in the present until he comes future. And this table is set now between the great deeds of Jesus Christ in the past, his great willingness on the basis of those deeds in the present, and the great deeds uh, in his return to take possession of all that is rightfully his in the future. And we eat the bread now, and we drink the cup in the time between. Uh, we we drink the 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 cup and we eat the bread in the place where the already overlaps with the not yet. Friends, you can't know how to live unless you know where you are, and you can't know where you are really unless you know when you are. And so I want to think with you about three. What is true about this? Age of overlap between the already and the not yet. You have to know. Uh, you have to know what the characteristics are, what the features are of this time where Jesus has set this table. Otherwise, you won't know how to live the Christian life. And for those of you who are visiting with us as non-Christian friends, that w- what we're going to be talking about today is is I, I trust by God's grace going to going to help you understand what the nature of the Christian life is and what it isn't. So I'm, I'm, I'm eagerly anticipating that God's going to bring clarity, not just to those of us who are Christians, but also to those who are here uh, by God's grace as non-Christians. And the first aspect of this age of overlap that I want to think about with you that the table reinforces is, is that we live, this age is an age of assurance. It's an age of assurance for those who are in Christ. Think about all the things that are true that we remember Uh, because, uh, because of what the table calls to our memory. Friends, in this age, right, Christians are people who are already enjoying peace with God, already entering into and appreciating and enjoying what it means to have shalom with God. We are already enjoying restoration with God. We are justified by faith. We have been forgiven. We remember this at the table. We remember that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been reckoned by God's grace to us, not at some future point, but now. As a present possession, we remember when we come to the table that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has abolished condemnation Jesus has abolished for all of his people he has made extinct unforgiveness he has made extinct guilt before God if you are in Christ he has abolished uncleanness before God if you are in Christ Your body has been, my Christian brother and sister, already your body has been washed with pure water. Your heart already, you remember at the table, has been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Not because you feel it, not because you accomplished it, but because Jesus shed his blood to that end 2,000 years ago. And God says, that does it. This table is a table of massive assurance. There is no sense in which a Christian should come to the table of the Lord cowering. No. This is an age of abundant assurance for those who are in Christ. Estrangement from God has been replaced by reconciliation with God. Being a child of wrath has been replaced by being, a, by, by, by being adopted as a son of God. Being without hope in the world You remember when you come to the table, my brother and sister, has been transformed into having an imperishable inheritance that is undefiled and that no one can take away from you. Oh, my brothers and sisters, this is an age of assurance. Think about what Jesus says. At this table, we obey his command to abide in him. This command from John 15, abide in me. It's a command that he gives us abide in me and I in you where we live out the communion with Jesus Christ the living communion with the risen reigning Lord that he commands us to enjoy that he lived and died and rose again to purchase for us and think about what he says it's not one-sided it's two-sided he says abide in me I just think that is so staggering. This is Jesus Christ saying to every one of his people, I will receive you. Abide in me. Come. Come. And not just part of you, but come with all of who you are. Come, and I will receive you. I do receive you. then he says and I the other side and I in you I mean how amazing is it that the greatest champion in all of history that the that the most righteous man in all of history that the incarnate son of God would say to you and to me who were his enemies and are personally responsible for every wound he received and every indignity, and every facet of the shame that he endured. We who are the ones that made it necessary for him to be tempted in all things as we are, and to suffer every day of his life by what he was tempted through to fight temptation without thanks from us, without being asked for it, and then to receive in his body the stripes that we had earned, that that one would say to us, yes, come to me. Because we're not emperors of the world. We're not wise. We're certainly not good. We're not beautiful. And yet he says, come, abide in me. Oh, what an assurance that is. And then on the other side, he says, and I in you, that the same one would not only make a space for us and receive us, but that then he would give himself to us. So there is a knitting together of the heart of Jesus Christ and the heart of his people that happens at this table, and that's the only way you're ever going to have assurance, my friends. But that's what Jesus Christ offers you. That's what he provi- That's the provision he makes for those who are in Christ through this table. It's absolutely staggering. We live in an age of rich and full assurance. Do not squander it, my friends. <laughs> Wonder and marvel at it and celebrate and skip up here. If you come dancing down the aisle to the benches, I will applaud you today if you do it by faith in Jesus Christ because it is that good to be forgiven, to have your conscience cleansed before God, to have the condemnation that you had earned, abolished and made extinct. Oh, those are good things. But secondly, we live in an age of suffering. And the table reminds us of that. The time between where this table is set, is also for Christians, not just an age of assurance, but it's an age of sacrifice, an age of trials and suffering. And our Lord gives His table to us to strengthen us in perseverance. You know, one day, there are going to be no more tears. One day, there will be no more trials. There will be no more costs of discipleship one day. But today is not that day. And so the Lord has given us his table. One day the blood of the martyrs will no longer be shed, but today is not that day. And so in the time between, in these overlapping shadows of his first and second coming, where his return where our Lord's return is promised and eagerly awaited, but not yet experienced. His people still suffer, not as the exception, but as the rule. So that's why Peter has to say in First Peter, don't be surprised. By these uh, fiery trials, that's why Paul has to say in Acts 14, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's one of the features of this age for the Christian. So if you're a non-Christian looking in and thinking, hey, if I become a Christian, I won't suffer. Well, you won't suffer for the same reasons. But you'll probably suffer more. That's what the scriptures teach. That's one of the costs of discipleship. Hello, Mike Francis. That is called a cross. Why are you surprised that the Christian life is full of trials? Mike Francis, that's a cross. And this age in between is an age where we're going to suffer. I mean, the servants, right? Jesus says it in John 15, the servants are not greater than their master, but nor are the servants forgotten or neglected by their master. And what treasures of sympathy, what treasures of strength for perseverance, the true vine provides for his suffering branches here at the table, right? This is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which means his death, right? The shedding of his blood. Both the elements remind us that he understands suffering from the inside. He's sympathetic with the sufferer, and in fact, his suffering exceeded all of our suffering. Friends, this is so important to understand about Jesus Christ that the Lord of glory, which is who he is, not only was the man of sorrows, but still is. He he is still the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 53. He, as the Lord of glory, he is still the man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. Friends, when the Apostle John sees the lamb in Revelation 5, he the first time he spots Jesus Christ in the throne room of heaven, he says, And I saw a lamb standing as if slain. Do you see what he means? He's looking at a lamb. Or he's looking, He's seeing Jesus Christ, and he's seeing Jesus Christ. Bear, he's alive. But why would he say standing as if slain? Because when John sees Jesus Christ, sees the Lord of glory in heaven, he sees him with all his evidently fatal wounds. He shouldn't be alive. Friends, you and I need to remember that the Jesus who hosts us at this table, who meets with us, who lifts us by His Spirit into His presence and who comes down to us by His Spirit, this Jesus Christ still and will forever bear His wounds incurred for His people. When He left his humiliation, and entered into his exaltation. He did not erase the memory of his humiliation. He made sure that his humiliation and all the shame and all the agony and all the suffering, he carried that with him into glory so that his intercession now at the Father's right hand for his people is it not only an omnipotent intercession, but it's an omniscient session that's why he can be in heaven an omnipotently and omnisciently sympathetic high priest for his people he knows what it is to suffer he knows what it is to endure shame he knows these things friends do you know in the gospel of matthew in chapter two at the end of chapter two um when Matthew's explaining why Jesus goes, or why Joseph brings uh, Jesus and Mary to settle in Nazareth, uh, Matthew says, it was so that what was said by the prophets would be fulfilled, and he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, there's a problem with that. There is no place in any of the prophets where that is explicitly stated, and in fact, Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. So what in the world is Matthew saying? Well, he 's not presuming to give a direct quote. Nazareth was a podunk, n- n- unimportant place, and so by the time you get to John chapter one, when Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he goes, <laughs> "You go, <laughs> wait a second. Can anything good come out of Nazareth because that's just so ridiculous to call somebody a Nazarene is." is to insult them, to belittle them, to make them really small, that that they're just not important. Nothing important could come out of that place. And you know what Matthew's really saying is is that the Messiah is going to be somebody who's overlooked, that the Messiah is going to be somebody who's on the wrong side of the world's insults. You know the only time in all of Scripture when Jesus identifies himself as a Nazarene? He does it once. In Acts chapter 22, when Paul is giving his testimony, and and uh, Paul describing what the encounter was like with Jesus on the road to Damascus, when he says, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I am Jesus. This is the exalted Christ saying this. I am Jesus of Nazareth. So in my exaltation, I carry my humiliation up there. Friends, Jesus Christ is a sympathetic high priest. And he gives himself to you today here. So what does this have to do with your suffering? Absolutely everything. This exalted high priest, he meets with us here and he gives himself away to us here. Friends, I assure you that the tale of every tear that you carry to this table, the tale of every fear, that you carry to this table, is not only known by Jesus Christ, but shared by him. That's the kind of high priest who gives himself for his people like this. Yes, it's an age of suffering, but it is also an age in which the suffering high priest sustains us. Remember that. And thirdly, The other thing about our location is that we live in an age of mission. So we come to the Lord's table this morning in that age of mission, which is defined both by the mercy of God and the urgency of God. So he gives the table not only to sustain us, not only to assure us, Uh, of our reconciliation with him and to strengthen us in that assurance and not only to sustain our perseverance through trials but also to propel us outward in mission. Do you see what Paul says in verse 26? For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's very clear that the Lord's table is meant for, not just for us to be consumers but to change us into ambassadors. Friends, you and I come and we take the elements and guess what? And we consume them. But, but we need to understand that our consumption is Jesus' conscription of us. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's literally, we preach the Lord's death until he comes again. If you take the elements as a Christian, Jesus intends that you will be preaching the cross not just to yourself and not just to one another, but beyond the bounds of the church, that this story of the Lord's death, think about that, just that phrase, the Lord's death, when you and I eat the bread and drink the cup, Paul says that we preach, we herald the Lord's death. And by the way, That's why if you're a non-Christian, this is not a safe place for you, this table. Because there is nothing that God is more jealous of in the universe than the atoning death of his son. And so if you, for whatever reason, besides genuine repentance of your sins and faith in Jesus Christ and submission to the church of Jesus Christ, if you come and presume to take the elements you are shaking your fist at God. And Paul gives very severe warnings in the rest of 1 Corinthians 11. And in fact, in Corinth, people were, it was so serious, people were were treating the Lord's Supper with such frivolity that God judged some of them by killing them. So friends, this is like very high voltage electricity used rightly, it can power a life. Used wrongly, it can destroy you. Because it's about the Lord's death. The Lord's death. The Lord's death. That's the content of what we are proclaiming and remembering. There is nothing bigger than that. The Lord, there's only one God, and he died. Why did he die? Who did he die for? How did he die? It's absolutely staggering. This opportunity now that has been opened up for us to be strengthened again in the message, to be brought again to the edges of the gospel and by God's Spirit to, to be enabled to peer into the wonder that man has sinned, but it is God the Son who suffered. That man has sinned, but it is God who has acted to justify man. And not by delegating this mission, uh, this rescue mission of salvation to a mere prophet or a teacher or even a mere Heir of David, but no, his own son, the second person of the Trinity, who would be entrusted with this mission and who carried this mission all the way to the point of laying down his life for those who were his enemies. Friends, let Let's let's not obstruct the Holy Spirit today as he wants to impress upon our hearts again as we partake of the elements, the wonder of that message. And let's recognize our responsibility that we are not here just to be consumers, but we are here to be transformed into the ambassadors of that Lord who died. If we think that the benefits of this table are designed by Jesus Christ to be conferred upon us and to, and to terminate upon us. We do not understand what he is about in our lives or in the world. And you say, but I'm so small. I'm so weak. I don't know theology. Well, neither do I. And I mean that sincerely. The best sermon, the best gospel presentation that a human being is capable of, you know what it is? It's just finger painting. But God is pleased to save people through the finger painting of his people. Look at this verse behind me. Faith, I was thinking about this. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Some of you were saved at Billy uh, Billy Graham Crusades. Some of you were saved under the ministries of, of great men, great preachers. But you know what? No one is saved in any way other than this. And notice Faith comes from, not from the ability of the person who shares the gospel. Faith comes by God's sovereign grace as the word about his son is spoken. So the way anyone is saved, whether under Charles Spurgeon's ministry, the Apostle Paul's ministry, John Piper's ministry, or my own atheist English professor who opened up the gospel for me unintentionally, The power is in the truth about Christ. It's the reality of his death and his resurrection that validates the power of his death. Friends, that's exactly the same message. It's the only message that saves. And that's the message you and I are being taught to celebrate. And we're being brought to relearn today as we partake of the elements. So don't think of yourself as too small. The issue is not your size or your ability. The issue is God's pleasure to save sinners by the word of Christ. Not the words of the evangelist. Now some of us need to repent. And some of us need to repent of being more concerned about what people think of us than what they think of Jesus Christ. So that's our location, an age of assurance, an age of suffering, and an age of mission. But let's now close by thinking about the relationship between our Lord's Supper and our longings. And let me make one thing very clear. This table is not designed by Jesus Christ. It is not given by Jesus Christ to satisfy our longings. It's given to intensify. If you don't leave this table hungrier and thirstier in a very important sense than when you came to it, then you haven't understood what Jesus intends to accomplish through it. We should leave here hungrier and thirstier, not because Jesus is not a generous host or because he is somehow starving us. This is a feast. This is not a fast. No, it's not because... Jesus is not teasing us here. He's teaching us here. He's teaching us what true hunger really is. He's teaching us where true satisfaction really lies. Because as, as massive as the benefits are that he confers upon his people through this table, what we discover is that even those massive things that we've been talking about, consolation in our sufferings, equipping for mission and assurance of our standing in Christ, as massive as those are, as revolutionary as they are, friends at the table, when we are reminded that he is coming back, what we realize is that those massive benefits, they are just the merest first fruits of a fuller harvest because now he sustains us in our sanctification but then when he returns he will bring us glorification. There will be no ambiguity. There will be no overlap then. The table, friends, is a gracious tool of persuasion that Jesus wields in the lives of his people to teach us that we will never find our true and full satisfaction in this world, in this age. And oh, how important that is to learn. Jesus is wanting to persuade us today that you will be hungry and thirsty until you die and that that is a gracious thing that he does in your life to keep you hungry and thirsty. Because the answer for what we really need and the answer for what we really long after must come in from the outside. It's what, it's what Tolkien describes as that joy beyond the walls of the world. The answer for our longing Cannot be that we experience in this world cannot be found will not be found in this world. No, Jesus, our Lord, must return. He must break through uh, history again and come in. And return in his majesty. Cross all those boundaries. It's only when he returns. That our hunger and thirst will really end. And that's one of the things that the table teaches us. So friends expect to have two longings strengthened today. As you come to the table. The first longing is your longing for Jesus himself. It's such an odd thing. Again. Again. There is so much tension in the Christian life by God's design. And it's a tension that, that is, is God's kindness because it keeps us alert. And the tension I'm thinking about here at the table is this table is defined by two things. One, the real presence of Jesus Christ. He's here. He's here by His Spirit. He's alive, and He's not only alive, but He's present by the Spirit. And He is going to give Himself away to His people today, freely and without restraint. Yes, hallelujah. This table is defined by His real presence. Jesus said to His disciples in John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And then in John 16, he says, I'm, going to, I'm leaving, but I'm going to send another comforter. It's the Holy Spirit who fulfills Jesus' promise from the end of Matthew's gospel. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He may not be physically present. But he is spiritually present and gives himself away to us through the sacrament today. So that's, that's one beautiful feature of the table. But let's not, let's not miss this other fact that defines this table. This table is also defined by his real absence. You know what's amazing? Every person in this room who is a Christian... Was converted without ever seeing Jesus Christ. You've committed your life to somebody you have never seen. How do you explain that? And how could you possibly be satisfied with that? One of my favorite verses about the Christian life is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Brothers and sisters, is that the testimony of your heart? Though you have not seen him, you love him, you love Him. You've never seen Him. And you love Him. That's staggering. And you love Him so much that Peter goes on and he says though you do not see Him you don't see Him. You still don't see Him. You believe in Him. You live the Christian life without seeing Him. And you believe in Him. And not only that, but Peter goes on to say, and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You're looking forward to that glory when he returns and you will see him. Oh, friends, I want more of Jesus' presence than this table gives me. I want to sit down at table with my Lord and see him drink from the cup that he promised to drink from at his own marriage supper. I want him to come. I want to see him. I want to be with him, not just by his spirit, but I want him to be physically present. I want to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And when I come to the table, my heart leans into that future. And I think that's exactly what Jesus wants. Though you do not see him, but believe in him. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Don't you want him to come? Don't you long to be with him? Now, I'm not in any sense, don't misinterpret. I'm not in any sense denigrating the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I love the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying that the gospel's good news, I'm just reminding us of what we already know, that the gospel's good news is better than the first coming. The gospel's good news is exceeded, exceeds the first coming. One day our Lord will come and it will will just say you love him. I love him and I have seen you. And the days of not seeing him will come to an end. But in the meantime, the table is given as a gift to deepen my longing for him and yours as well. And the second longing that the table is given to sharpen and to clarify and intensify for us is our longing for his vindication. And the longer I'm a Christian, the more this is an important theme for me because. Because Jesus is denied so much honor in the world. You know, the first, his first coming was his incarnation, but his second coming will be his full vindication. His first coming, he, his glory was veiled, but his second coming, his glory will be unveiled. It will, it will not be possible to mistake his true identity. His first coming was a coming of humiliation and suffering. His second coming will be a, a, a coming of his exaltation. And he will be honored in the world. You know, he has denied glory in the world. He has denied the rightful glory that is his for being the only mediator between God and man. He's denied that glory by people. I want him to receive that glory. I want him to hear, the longer I'm a Christian, and brothers and sisters, do you not join me in this? Is this not the sincere testimony of your heart that you want Jesus to enter into the fullness of what he has earned through his ministry to have every knee bow before him? To have every single tongue on earth and under the earth and in heaven confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Do you not want to see him honored as the judge of the living and the dead who is separating the sheep from the goats? Do you not want to see him honored as the great hope and longing of his people? as the only one who can come and transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the same power that he has to bring everything, all the the new heavens and all the new earth into conformity with his glory. Do you not want that? Well, that's the story this table tells It reminds us that a day is coming when Jesus Christ will no longer be slandered. His name will no longer be used as a curse word. He will no longer be diminished. He will no longer be overlooked. He will no longer be dismissed. He will be praised. He will be thanked. He will be adored by his people. So friends, may we lean into that future. And I pray that you will be hungrier and thirstier. At the end of this sacrament today, than you were uh, when you first came. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now for these longings, which are not of our own making, they are your gracious gifts to us. We pray that you would fan them into flame and prepare our hearts to receive all that you mean to give us this morning. And we pray in your name, amen.